question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked shall be shaken out of it. Jump down to verse 17. Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or who has seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know, all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness? That you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its home. You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Jump with me to 25. Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain, and a way for the thunderbolt, to bring rain on a land where, there is, where, man, there, where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout forth with grass. And we'll close with chapter, with the 39, verse 39 through the beginning of chapter 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Let us pray. Father God, this is a long passage where you pour out your wisdom to Job and to us. You show us the the breadth and the depth and the expanse of your understanding and your knowledge, and to that we give you praise. And as we seek to understand just a glimpse, just the tip of the surface of your wisdom, would you by your spirit grow us, strengthen us, that we may understand you just a little bit more this morning. Be glorified in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Cheesesteaks. I must admit that not living in close proximity to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania has me missing the cheesesteak and pizza. Now, some of you may think I'm being a little bit dramatic here. There are plenty of sandwich shops, even here in in Arkansas, and restaurants with cheesesteaks on the menus and even Philly cheesesteaks. But without trying to be snobbish or arrogant in any way, I chuckle at such a notion. There is only one place where you can get a Philly cheesesteak, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And even once you are there, the problem is not completely solved, because depending on who you talk to, you could be trekking to any corner of the city 
to any establishment to find the best cheesesteak. Now, personally, I am not that picky. I will take my whiz with, which is how you order it, from the well-known places with the bright lights and the whistles that everyone knows about, or in the hole in the wall that very few people are aware of. The differences, once you are in the city, are mostly about preference. How do you like your meat? How do you like your cheese? How do you like your bread? To me, it doesn't matter. And I also must admit that I am not entirely sure what makes the Philly cheesesteak as special as it is. The meat and the cheese are nothing special. And the reality is there's people around the, the country who are experimenting with better cuts of meat and better cheese to, to highlight or to make the cheesesteak even better than it already is. And I even used to experiment on my own in making cheesesteaks, and while they were okay, they still fell way short of the bar. And the theories as to the excellencies of the cheesesteak are many. My personal opinion is I think it's just nostalgia and atmosphere. There's something that it tastes better in the city than it does anywhere else. Some say it's the fresh rolls, Amoroso rolls, made daily each and every morning, coming from New Jersey. Whatever it is, people around the country, to their credit, are making Philly cheesesteaks and doing a pretty good job of it. The reports are rather positive that you can get a good Philly cheesesteak anywhere in the country. But regardless, I still hold firm to the fact that chili, Philly cheesesteaks remain unmatched, unparalleled. They are in their own category. But far surpassing than any specialized Philly sandwich stands the unequaled wisdom, the unrivaled understanding of God, the creator of all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, as Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1. The Lord's first response to Job here in chapters 38 and 39 emphasizes the supremacy of his wisdom. In poetic fashion, using heavy imagery, the Lord provides Job with just a sampling, just a small taste of the divine knowledge and understanding that is God. The Lord takes Job, as one commentator writes, to his school of wisdom. Job will drink from the divine fire hose, if you will, of wisdom. He will leave overwhelmed by the nature and the character of God's perfect and infinite wisdom and knowledge. Because way back in Job chapter 10, verses 12 through 13, in his cries, in his complaints, in his questions, Job confesses to know the purposes of the Lord. He says that the Lord's purpose has been to hide life, to hide steadfast love, and to care from Job. And we see that in speaking out of the storm here in chapter 38, the Lord is about to show Job how uninformed he is about his purposes, about his wisdom. None of this, though, is designed to humiliate or to shame Job. The Lord has not come to kind of rub all of this in Job's face to make him feel even worse than he already feels. No, the Lord comes even in the midst of a whirlwind almost as a gracious father or as a loving teacher to open up the eyes of Job's mind and his heart to just how much he does not and cannot understand. Job is going to be taken out of his ash heap to see beyond himself to the surpassing greatness of God's wisdom. 
And it is here where we will learn that God is the almighty creator whose wisdom is unparalleled. Now, unfortunately, I didn't make the, uh, the bulletin deadline. Peggy was out of town, so she, she printed them on Wednesday. But the points for this morning are going to be three. We're going to look how the unparalleled wisdom of God is a boundless wisdom. We're going to look at how it is a beautiful wisdom. And finally, how it is a benevolent wisdom. And hopefully as we go through this, we'll also emphasize that one sermon is not going to do justice to everything that is in these two chapters. Each topic that the Lord brings up, or each example that God directs Job to, could be its own sermon. So our time this morning is kind of going to feel like a 30,000 foot flyover of these two chapters. But even in that 30,000 foot view, it will give us more than enough to feel the weight of God's unparalleled wisdom. But first, we start and we see that the Lord shows Job that his wisdom is a boundless wisdom. There is no limit to God's understanding, to his knowledge. It exceeds all time and all space. And this simple reality is, in a way, the main thrust of what the Lord is revealing to Job. The wisdom of God Almighty is infinite. Job's knowledge and wisdom, on the other hand, is finite. It is restricted to his experiences, to what he can touch, what he can see, what he can hear, smell, taste, and feel. If he's a studied man, maybe it reaches just a little bit further into some of the things that the common man does not know. And the list that God provides in these two chapters is an incredible list, but it's in no way exhaustive. There is many things that the Lord leaves out that he could have very easily addressed. A quick summary of the list highlighted by the Lord are these. The earth, the sea, the morning, the underworld, the light, the snow, the rain, the stars, the clouds. And then he gets into the animals. Lions, ravens, mountain goats, wild donkeys, wild oxen, the ostrich, the horse, the hawk, and the eagle. I'm pretty sure that each one of these could be given its own episode or an entire season in a nature's documentary. Some even have their own films. If you were to go and type in the lion, I'm sure there's an entire film just based on one lion pride in one specific area on the globe. But we see that the Lord shows Job his boundless wisdom is not restrained by time. At the very beginning, Job is pulled back to the very beginning, where wisdom was. And it leaves Job with the question, where were you? Look at verses 4 through 5, where the Lord says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. We know the answer to this question, and every question the Lord gives Job is, Job has no idea. How could he know these things? He would either have to be some sort of eternal being, or like the created angels who were there celebrating, singing of the glory of God as he created everything we see and everything we don't. Because it is in God's wisdom that he created and established the heavens and the earth. 
And this is the testimony of Scripture as a whole. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see God's creative work as establishing the earth, the picture of the earth placed on its resting pillars, where it is stable, where it is sure. The wisdom of the Lord is nothing new. Creation was built upon it, and it continues to operate in accordance with it. But not only is God's wisdom boundless in that it stands beyond time, it's also not confined or restricted by any powerful force. Instead, it establishes such forces. Listen to how God speaks and questions Job about the sea in verses 8 and 10. He says, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst open from the womb and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors? Contrary to the thought of that time, God did not engage in some sort of wrestling match or a battle with the God of the sea for supremacy over it. No, he created the sea. And in creating it, he gave it limits. He said, this is how far you will go. No further. The picture that it's painted is, is of a city gate where two doors would, be, would come together and to close off the gate. And then to add more fortification, a bar would fall in between both of them so that nothing could push against the gates. We see that the wild and the raging sea is walled in by God's power and his wisdom. It swells as he determines. It recedes according to his infinite knowledge and wisdom. I used to live within a relatively short drive of the, of the beach. Jetties are constructed all along the shore to try and control or to influence the tides and the waves to keep them from totally destroying beaches and fronts. And sure, they generally work most of the time. You can build a house at the shore and not, for the most part, have fear of it coming crashing down. But everyone knows that when the big storms come, even the jetties and the piers will not keep the sea confined, will not limit it. The sea has a power and a mind almost unto itself. But God in his wisdom restrains it, oversees it, rules it. And as his speech would continue, we'll see the same also holds true of the storms, the weather, the heavenly bodies. They may be strong and powerful and even dangerous at times. But each is limited, is moved, and is guided by the wisdom of its creator. Not one can operate outside of the counsel of the one who made it. But we also see the boundless wisdom of God is it stretches beyond space. It reaches to the darkest places. There is no place where it does not and cannot go. His wisdom even instructs and informs the deepest and darkest places. Listen to what he tells Job in verse 17 of, of chapter 38. Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? And then in 19, he says, Where is the way to the dwelling of light? Where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory? That you may discern the paths to its home? 
This is a very vivid picture. It likens God to kind of this personal chaperone. He goes to the place where light dwells and gets it. Brings it into his arm and carries it to where it's supposed to be. And then at the end of the day, he goes and gets light again and walks it home and puts it back to its place of rest. He knows the path to light like the back of his own hand. And there is no way that Job could know such locations. We find that the Lord tells Job, there is no place on the surface of the earth that is unknown, that is a mystery to the God of infinite wisdom. I think I've confessed it before, but I am a big fan of nature documentaries. Our family actually watched one on New Year's morning about foxes. And I have been ever since I was a kid. And as we get to watch these documentaries and see the amazement of creation, in some ways we can understand things a little bit better than Job did. We know a little bit more about some of these uninhabited places, about the depths of the sea, if you will. But even as our technology and our information, our knowledge grows, there is still so much that we do not know. So much that we cannot know. This earth, the universe, still remains of much of mystery to us as finite man as it did to Job. The oceans are still deep. In some spots, even too deep for cameras and technology to plumb the depths of. Space remains vast and dark and unknown. Even on the face of our earth, there are thick jungles that are dense, that are relatively untouched by anything of man. And God, in all of his wisdom, in all of his knowledge, in all of his understanding, knows these places intimately. He has established these places. He knows the creatures in them, some of them never even discovered by man. He knows the climates. His understanding, his knowledge is so vast that he knows the exact makeup of each and every molecule in these places. In these pictures in Job 38 and 39 alone, Job can only sit keenly aware of his own ignorance and his limitations. He walks away with the reality that God is not only wise, but as a scholar says, he is unimaginably wise. And his resources infinite. And our God has not changed. He is the same bound, uh, boundless, wise creator that he always has been. Even as this fallen world grows more and more arrogant in our sense of our wisdom and of our understanding, God remains wise and infinite. And may we acknowledge his wisdom May we humble ourselves before it. Sit under it even as it unfolds in ways that make no sense to our understanding. May we not think that we know better than God or somehow find his wisdom is lacking. But instead, like Job, may we be remembered of our finite and flawed wisdom is but one grain of sand on the vast and infinite shore of God's wisdom. But besides being a boundless wisdom, 
God also displays to Job that his wisdom is a beautiful wisdom. The outworking of God's wisdom highlights his majesty and his glory. These examples that God gives, they show off his beauty, the beauty of his wisdom. Each one, as one scholar writes, all speaks of the power and the wisdom of their creator, saying at once that God is marvelous and mysterious. He is observable, but also elusive. We don't have time to get into each picture specifically. I think we can generalize how we see the beauty of God's wisdom in, in, in two ways. The first we see there is a beauty to order. Scripture we know emphasizes how our God is a God of order. If we go back to the Old Testament, the entire tabernacle system and the way that the Israelites surrounded themselves around it was ordered. It was detailed. And then the sacrificial system, if you read the book of Leviticus, is explicitly detailed to the tiniest detail. Fast forward to the New Testament and Paul tells the church in Corinth, the chaotic church that's doing a whole bunch of things out of order and in confusion. He reminds them that God is not a God of confusion or disorder, but a God of peace. There is something beautiful when things are put into order. Now I must admit, I am not good at organization. It is not a gift of mine. I seem to swing from one extreme to the other. I go from being really organized to being completely disorganized. But when I am organized, it's great. It's comforting. I feel accomplished. And if I ever feel like I am, I open Tim's office and look at his and realize, oh my goodness, I am not organized by any stretch of the imagination. And I find his office to be a motivation for me to just get a little bit more organized. Order is both visually refreshing and internally comforting. But we admit, we must admit that as we look at creation, it can feel at times like it is anything but in order. God, however, though, points Job to the fact that his wisdom has put things in a perfect and beautiful order. Listen to what he says in verse 12 of 38. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? There is a beautiful wisdom in the simple fact that each and every morning starts with a sunrise and each and every day ends with a sunset. The sunrise and the sunset each know where it belongs and when to do its thing. There's order, there's structure to it. We literally take this for granted on a daily basis. Each and every day ends and starts in the same beautifully ordered fashion. But God also says in verse 33, do you know the, or the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on earth? He encourages Job to look up at the night sky. Why do some constellations only appear in certain seasons? I don't know that much about the night sky, but I know Orion, the easiest one I can find, only appears in the fall and the winter. Why do they move across the sky in the way they do? It is because of God's wisdom. Such a reality doesn't seem as critical for us today, but in the days before navigation systems, smartphones, GPS, the order of the night sky was critical for safe and successful travel. 
you need to know where the North Star is if you want to go north. Otherwise, you're just going to be swirling around in circles. Good luck being on the open sea without any idea of where the way the night sky is structured and ordered. But the Lord continues. He mentions the changing seasons, the weather patterns. And then he specifically references the birth cycle of mountain goats. He asks Job, do you know when the goats give birth? You can almost see Job scratching his head like, seriously? Mountain goats? Personally, I know very little of the, the birth cycle of the mountain goats. And I don't think anyone here is an expert in that. If you are, maybe talk to me afterwards. However, I have had two children, and we have a third one planned on the way. And while pregnancy is not fun or comfortable, particularly for my wife, there is a beautiful order in it, structured by the wisdom of God. We have this app on our phone, which is really fascinating, that tells us the stage that our baby is currently in. It tells us the size of the baby. I think right now our baby is the size of a mango. And it tells you the developments that the baby is going through. I think right now it can recognize our voices. It can suck its own thumb. These developments, these stages are far from random. They don't just happen off of a whim. They happen because this is how God designed it, according to his wisdom and his knowledge. Things develop in an order and a structure so that it culminates in a healthy, Lord willing, baby being born at the end of nine months. And it happens this way with all of God's creatures. Each is different. It is a testament to the beauty and the majesty of our God's wisdom. But the second thing we see about the beauty of God's wisdom is not only in their order, but there's also just vast creativity. In his wisdom, God has made things that are far from boring or plain. The creativity certainly comes out in the inanimate objects. Just think of a sunrise or a sunset and the beautiful colors. Or in the way a storm rolls in and rolls out. But the most clear, we didn't read it, or really in chapter, is in chapter 39, where God kind of unfolds the animal world. And again, if you know animal, animal documentaries, you know that the animal kingdom is vast. There is a wide variety of animals. And God points to them, mainly the wild ones. We don't really know why, but maybe it's to drive home to Job just how limited his wisdom and abilities are. He was a successful herdsman, a shepherd. He probably tamed a number of animals. But God gives him a list that says, what have you done with these? What can you do with these? And there's still a lot more of animals that could be discovered and left to be untamed. God points to the lions, the oxen, the birds of prey, and the horses, who though tame are still not always compliant. And God even says that they kind of enjoy the smell of battle. That's a beast I don't think I want to tangle with. But the animal that makes us stop most is found in, in chapter 39 and verse 13, and it's the ostrich. Now scholars go back and forth about the precise identity of this bird. The consensus is an ostrich. Some, some think it may actually be a peacock. Whatever the identity, I'm not sure. We see that this, this creature, this bird, has wings and feathers that swell her with pride. She's beautiful as she struts them. She is known and praised for her speed, 
She can outrun warrior and horse. She is strong. She even uses innovative means to warm her eggs, finding a warm spot on the ground to let them incubate and grow. And yet, to be frank, she's also very stupid. Her innovations put her eggs at risk of being crushed. Her mothering skills are awful. She seems to lack the general intelligence that most of us are amazed when we look at the animal kingdom. And then when you compare this bird with the majestic birds of flight like the hawk and the eagle, it kind of makes us chuckle a little bit. Why would God include the ostrich? And he almost puts her before Job in kind of a way to say, I created her. So what? I enjoy her in her beauty, in her simplicity. She is a testament to my creativity, of my mater this way, for my glory, and to show off, if you will, my wisdom. And again, we're reminded our God has not changed. His wisdom is still beautiful. Even in a year that has been when it seemed like the beauty was hard to find or celebrate, it is still there. Go for a walk. You'll find it. Step outside and look up on one of these cold, crisp evenings. See the moon shining in all of its brightness and glory. See the stars arrayed in their magnificence. Let it be a comfort to us, even as we enter this new year, an uncertain year. That order and beauty and creativity are still there as designed by God's wisdom. And then may we joyfully celebrate and praise God for his wisdom. But finally, we see that God's wisdom is also a benevolent wisdom. Because from his wisdom, we see that God cares for, provides for all of his creation, the great and the small alike. Job experiences the goodness of God in the simple fact that God shows up to speak with him. God was not obligated to grace Job with his presence or to answer any of his questions. And the fact that he shows up in a storm presents or threatens that Job, to Job that he could be coming in judgment. Because when God comes in the storm, oftentimes in Old Testament, it's coming to judge. But no, God comes powerfully, but also personally. As he would with Moses, he comes to talk to Job to dialogue with him, proving that he cares, that he's near, that he's unwilling to abandon his servant. And then God unfolds for Job his goodness, his benevolence to all of creation. And we see it first in the way that he cares for his creatures. He says, can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lion? He asks him who provides the raven its prey. In case it's not abundantly clear, Psalm 147, verse 9 says, The Lord gives to the beasts their food, and to the young ravens that cry. We heard the same from the lips of Luke 12, the lips of Jesus that Bruce read earlier. The Lord feeds the ravens. He clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown in the fire. So naturally then, we know that he's the one who gives the lions, all the beasts, exactly what they need. And from the rest of this speech, we see that God has graciously provided homes, strength, 
and wisdom to his creatures that they might survive. But we also see that the benevolence of God's wisdom limits the wicked. In verses 13 and 15, he says, When the dawn comes, the wicked are shaken out of it, out of the earth. From the wicked, their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. As he's speaking about the same, that the, the faithfulness of the rising sun, God also is showing the effect that it has on the wicked. Typically, the wicked perform their wickedness at night under the cloak of darkness. The daily dawn provides a kind of break to the schemes of the wicked out of God's goodness. Surely it doesn't mean that all sin and evil ceases with the daylight. If you come to my house, our holiest hours are at night when we're all peacefully sleeping. But on the whole, the light of day is a sign of God's benevolent wisdom. Because aside from the obvious benefits that all creation receives of being under the light, there's also a kind of pause that is placed on certain kinds of wickedness and evil. For a few hours, we can catch a glimpse of how creation was originally designed to be. People working to the glory of God, whether they're aware of it or not. People serving one another with gratitude, with mercy, and with kindness. People enjoying life and the gifts that God has graciously given. But maybe more pressing and more precious to Job is the final picture of his, God's benevolent wisdom. And it is seen in that God is ruling and reigning over all of the chaos of life. If you kind of scope through the, these elements that God brings in these passages, we see that there's a lot of chaos in here. There's a lot of things that God draws Job's mind to that bring disaster, ruin, destruction. Wild animals are a threat to man and his well-being. Storms, back in chapter 1, took the lives of Job's children. They continue to take lives, sadly, today. We know the rains bring floods, which destroy. The sea destroys when it rages. The horse enters battle. Battle is a place of sorrow, of pain, and of death. God doesn't scale back and keep Job from seeing or recognizing some of the horrors of life, if you will. He doesn't come to Job only showing the good and the peaceful and the beautiful aspects of creation. He points Job even to the chaotic, to the ugly, to the painful, the frightening, even the unwanted aspects. And what does he reveal about these things? That God in his divine and infinite wisdom rules them. He reigns them. He governs all of them. He is not weak. He is not unable to control or bring them all to an end. In a way, he's confirming that all things that happened to Job were not outside of his wisdom. They didn't come from somewhere unknown to God and wreak havoc, and now God has had to adjust. They've been a part of the counsel of his will. It falls in line with what we confessed earlier, that God hath most sovereign dominion over all things, that he does by them, for them, and upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. Recalling from chapters 1 and 2 last week, this doesn't mean that all things will make sense to us. 
it can and will be a challenge for us to proclaim God's benevolent wisdom in times of disaster and hardship and suffering. But there's also a great comfort available to us in knowing that God still governs these things by his infinite, boundless wisdom. That there is a purpose for it. It's not random. It's not meaningless. There is even a beauty in it, even if we can't see it. There is good being done in its end. His wisdom rules the beautiful order and even the wild chaos alike. And in a way, the season of Christmas that we just celebrated is a testament to God's divine wisdom. I don't remember it if we, if we read it over the course of our celebration, but Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5 holds it out before us. When Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Even in this passage alone, we see the bountiful wisdom of God is at work in eternity past. It set the plan of salvation that would come through the Son's incarnation, his death, and his resurrection. We see the beauty of God's wisdom, seen in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ walking in our flesh, wisdom incarnate, revealing to us the glory of God the Father. And we see the benevolence of God's wisdom manifest in the work that he accomplished. The work of bringing salvation to all people, using even the chaos, the corruption, the evil of the cross. He brought all who rest in Christ into his family as sons through his perfect, infinite wisdom. Jesus Christ holds out for us that the wisdom of God is good. It works for the good of God's people and the glory of his name, and it can be trusted. Again, we've only skimmed the surface of all there is to take in from the Lord's first response to Job. We'll look at his second response next week in chapters 40 and 41. But I would encourage all of us over the course of, of even today to go through and read the entirety of these two chapters. Read it for yourselves. Read it with your spouse, read it with your kids as a family, and in it, observe, take notice of the infinite wisdom of God revealed to you. Let it encourage you as we sit here at the dawn of a new year, which holds out promises of blessing and also promises of more chaos and suffering and unknown. And let it drive you then to worship the immortal, the invisible, God-only-wise. And as we close our time this morning and prepare to gather around the Lord's table, I briefly, in closing, want to press just two proper responses to this overwhelming description of God's infinite wisdom for right here and right now. I think Calvin hints on it when he says this about God's response in Job. The story of Job and its description of God's wisdom, power, and purity always expresses a powerful argument that overwhelms man with the realization of their own stupidity, impotence, and corruption. Now, I'm going to be a little bit nicer, hopefully, and softer than Calvin. But the first response is humility. We, do not, we didn't read it, but the first two verses of chapter 40 is Job's confession of humility. He recognizes that he knows so little. 
compared to how much our God knows. Our wisdom as finite creatures is finite. It is severely limited. We cannot, we will not know as God knows. And instead of moving in a way of defying arrogance or arrogantly making demands, let it allow us to move us into a posture of humility. For as Proverbs 11.2 declares, with the humble is wisdom. We will find wisdom as we humble ourselves before the one who alone is wise. But the second and the final one, is in, it kind of flows right out of humility, and it's trust. Our finiteness, like Job, means we will not get all the questions to all the answers that we have. God will not tell us. He's not obligated to tell us, and he need not tell us all of his purposes. And we need to learn to trust in him and to rest in his wisdom. To do what Proverbs 3 tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lay not on your own understanding. Because God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. We must trust him. Whatever this year holds in store for us, whether it's great, times of blessing, or whether it's hard, times of sorrow and suffering, let us remain humble, trusting in him alone. God the Almighty Creator, his wisdom is unparalleled. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your unparalleled wisdom. It kind of leaves us speechless, or should leave us speechless. And we are reminded just how little we know. But God, we praise you that your wisdom is boundless. That it is beautiful. That it is working towards our good. May we respond with humility. May we respond with trust. And may we give you praise for this year ahead. Where we will see your wisdom continue to do its work. In and through us we ask. In Christ's name. Amen. As we prepare to take of the table, let us stand together and sing the hymn on page six, Behold Our God, a hymn that is confessing what we've just heard and what we're about to partake, that God is great, that his wisdom is infinite. It includes creation and it also includes the sacrifice of his son. So let us together stand and sing.